And now it's time for East Coast and reports from coastal stations. East at Sierra, West at Sierra, Southwest at Sierra, and North Northeast at Sierra. Wind southwest, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss, and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your Your doctor's receptionist or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome back to EastCast here on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. EastCast is a monthly delve into the arts, the culture and the community simmering away in East London, but as always, resonating way beyond this little corner of the world. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Pearl Wise and I'm here with Johnny Virgo and Jesse Lawson. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, EastCasters. This month, we hear about a fascinating collection of diaries at the Bishopsgate Institute and how an East London-based drinks company is way beyond its humble beginnings in its founder's kitchen. And I'm speaking to international memory champion and founder of a memorized app, Ed Cook. I'll be sharing the third episode of my mini-series, Starting Conversations, where I find out how much people know about the menopause. But first, I'm going to be learning what makes a great man with David Brockway. Uh, so this month, I stumbled upon a website called Great Men, and I wanted to find out what it was all about. Um, I found out the full name of the project is The Great Men Project, and it's an organisation that delivers workshops to young, uh, young boys, young men in schools, with the aim of disrupting gender stereotypes. So I, interv- I invited Dave who runs the project, to tell us more. Hello, David. Hello. Hi. So what is the Great Men Project and why is it necessary? Basically, the project is um, a school's workshop. It falls under what you would call PSHE, and we deliver three-hour sessions with boys in UK secondary schools, mainly in London, Great London area, that delve into what masculinity is, um, what it means to the boys, what stereotypes are, how they affect them and the people around them. Um, we work with everyone from 12 to 18, mainly 12 to 15-year-olds. Um, and as for why it's necessary, there's a huge amount of, re- amount of reasons. It's not, as a gender equality charity, I think a lot of people think gender and think women. And, of course, everybody has gender or is gendered. And for us, one of the things that's really important is that although men and boys aren't on the receiving end of as negative impacts of gender inequality, gender still affects men in many negative ways. And I won't go into too much academia and jargon at this point. Uh, we can if you want to. But basically, there are lots of issues that affect men and boys, um, which they need to tackle, as well as those that affect men and women. And, and really, we see that um, they're all one piece of the same puzzle. So, um, or, or many pieces of the same puzzle. We should tackle them all. You can't just look at any in isolation. Um, how do the workshops work? So how, like, how do you break down this like, massive thing of masculinity? So 
the and we do a number of workshops but our core work are these um three hour sessions that come in and address what stereotypes are particularly gender stereotypes so we ask the boys to tell us what's the first word that comes into their head when we say man and then women um well that's our first activity of course there's some warm-ups and so forth first but Basically, within that, we ask them to literally, in, as part of a relay race, um, they're in teams, they've got to write down all these words. And so it's quite fun, it's very active. Um, and, of course, you get the first thing that comes out of the head of a teenage boy, um, which, I don't know your rules on language, but for it's basically genitalia, a lot of it. Um, but then I, I, I think I've worked with nearly 5,000 um, boys over the last few years. I mean, not always me directly because I supervise my team of volunteers, but I don't think I can recount an instance where strong wasn't at the top of within the top few words of the men's list. Um, the women's one was more varied, sadly more sexualized, but nonetheless, this idea of strength and masculinity and being a man is something which is quite rigid and, in some respects, old fashioned is is still very much there. Uh, do you use the word feminism in your workshops? Um, we don't necessarily. We normally wait for boys to bring it up. We're very participant-led, so we train our facilitators to do a hands-off um, facilitation process in which we throw out questions, our activities, as segues into discussions, and then we see what comes back um, to us. Um, I, I ran a workshop yesterday when the boys did mentioned the word feminism quite early on so that was great so we did have a talk about it um i'd love it if we always could sometimes the concept goes a bit over their heads if we're talking 12 to 13 year olds um other times it can prove a really fascinating discussion so yeah it um it often comes up so once you've got this once you start off and you're like what do you think about men and women where do you go from there how do you start to like change or tackle those stereotypes so from there we go into a bit of a conversation um that asks the boys to say whether they agree or disagree with various statements. So we get the boys as a group to participate in this activity so that they can see where their classmates are on, on certain issues. So that's things about emotions and showing your emotions, using violence, um, roles in terms of um, are men supposed to be breadwinners and um, women um, carers, housekeepers and so forth. Um and through that, what we do is is try to show that there's a way you view yourself and there's a way you know that you as a effectively a unit of men or masculinity is viewed. So the easy examples of crying, boys know it's natural to cry. Almost every time we get a group saying, yeah, everyone cries, everyone shows their emotions, that's fine. And when you say, are you embarrassed to cry at school? And everyone's at the other end of the room saying like, yeah, of course, obviously you don't show people you're upset at school. And so the basic question is, how can it be that on something where you all know is okay and natural and you know five minutes ago you're saying that's part of who we are to being like i can't show this in public and of course they get the they get the answers themselves they're smart kids um normally just don't get a chance to talk about these things and they say well it's because of how other people make you feel and then we're into well, why is that how do they make you feel what purpose might this serve and we start throwing these questions out get the boys talking to each other so that they can really understand um sort of what's the basis of the socialization of stereotypes and gender um we almost never use the word socialization but um that's basically what we're getting at so through there we're into sort of effectively stage two which is there's the stereotypes there's the idea that this is a socialization 
And then we're on to um, talking about how does this impact people. So we've got a number of activities there, which, you know, to save time, I won't go into them in detail. But basically, we open up some conversations that let boys see things about the way men and women are portrayed in the media um, and advertising. Uh, We talk about sexuality and the um, sort of the presumption that um, all men are straight and not just straight, but out there to get girls, that you're on the prowl. Um, the pressure that puts on them, really, because if they're not straight heterosexual, you know, that's already putting on a burden. But then that they might not want to be that guy who's always going around trying to pick up girls. Um, and then from there, we take the session towards somewhere where we look at some statistics, we look at how these things impact people in the real world. Um, and that always shocks the boys. So three of the things we, we always cover is um, the male prison population in the UK, the um, proportion of women that experience some form of sexual violence in their lifetime, as well as um, the equivalent for girls in their schools. Um, And then talking about the leading cause of death in men under 45, which is suicide. Um, Now quite a a well-known statistic, I think, but all three of those things tend to really shock the boys. Um, And so we ask, why might this be the case? And what can we do about this? The answer to the first question, they tend to go back through the session and look at the stereotypes that they themselves picked out and discussions that they had of each other. And, I mean, you you see amazing levels of um, sort of intuition from so many of these boys when we're saying, why might someone um, take their own life through suicide um, in relation to these masculine stereotypes? And I've had boys who have said earlier in the day, I was the one who was saying that your key role as a man is to earn money and support your family. And you might end up thinking that if you can't do that, you're a failure and therefore you're more likely to um, end up punishing yourself. And then someone else can chip in that, well, we also had that stereotype that men don't ask for help. So if you combine those two things, then you're already going down a pretty difficult place. And I mean, there's so many different examples of how those things go together. Um, And from there, we can say, what can we do to change this? And we try not to give too much direct sort of you must do this. Um, Although annoyingly in our feedback, they all say, tell us what to do. (laughs) No, we don't want to tell you. Um, But the answers they tend to come up with are are quite simple um, that, you know, let's start talking about this. Um, And we always say you can't change the world immediately. Um, we're realists. We're not sort of, hey, guys, you know what's cool? Equality. Let's change everything. We're clapping our hands. We're coming in and saying, you know what? You can leave here and not believe most of what I've said. Um, You can challenge it. You can take it home. You can talk about it with your friends and diss it. Or you can say you think it's you know, right on. Not that they, kids talk like that. Um, <laughs> not that I should talk like that. Um, yeah, but, um, but we basically give them those options and then say, But what you can influence is how you think and feel and act and the people around you. You always have that. You can always say to someone, that language is inappropriate. Don't call a girl a slag because she's done what you did and got called a player for. Um, But you can say to your mates that you're feeling down and let them know that they can tell you that as well. Because that's a really easy action to do. For a lot of men and boys, it's terrifying to tell people how you feel. But when you actually approach it, it's possible. And that can make such a difference in someone's mental health. Um, So we try to pick out what are the simple actions, what can be done. And then when we leave, it means that sometimes we don't get to see that carried out. We almost never do. 
we come back, but you might not know. So we take this approach that we're planting seeds. Um, we're not reinventing the wheel. So two cliches in one. Um, <laughs> there we go. Um, I wanted to ask you about that because I think, I think you're totally right. I think speaking to your friend is one of the best and easiest things that you can do. But that's something that a lot of adults still find really hard if mm. you're in a group of, like, if you, I imagine if you're a guy and you're in a group of people chatting about a, a woman in a disrespectful way, it is really intimidating to, to call someone out. Mm. Do you have, like, what advice do you have for people our age? Be prepared to lose friends. Um, <laughs> and I mean that honestly, like if these things matter to you, then after a while you've got to, um, you've got to get to where, you know, where you feel comfortable in that friendship. Um, but also just to, um, you know, try and ask someone if they've ever actually thought about this, um, you know, in terms of things that you know are right or wrong. Do you, how many other, th- other things do you feel are acceptable? I mean, for people con- are familiar with intersectionality, and this is where we always work with the boys, m- almost all the boys we work with are hugely against racism. And most of them get that homophobia is wrong. And we say to them, like, this is the same. This is, it's the same action, but with different groups. The action is prejudice, it's hatred, and that doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's always going on. So if you've ever cared about something... And if you have anything that can be picked on, basically, unless you're Boris Johnson or someone else like that, who's got all the powers and privileges that come with being um, a wealthy, white, middle class, upper class person in this country, then there's probably something that you are at a disadvantage for. And if you've ever felt picked on in any way, then you there is part of you that can empathise with this. And so... Yeah, go for that. Thanks so much for coming in. Um, where can people find out more about? Um, so we've got a couple of website issues. One's under construction, but we're great-men.org. Um, you can also email us at info at, well, our old e- email address, info at thegreatinitiative.org. Um, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook just by searching Great Men or Great Men Project. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, David. Um, So I don't know if any of you kept a diary as a teenager or still do. And how would you feel about other people reading that diary? (laughs) I know that I would be absolutely mortified if anyone dug up my old diaries. But um, we're about to hear about a unique archive of people's history um, that anyone can add to, telling the stories of Londoners' lives for future generations. Um, Eastcast contributor Celia Robbins met Irvin Finkel and Steph Dickers to find out about, about the Great Diary Project. Everything, as it turns out, all forces of nature combine to destroy diaries as soon as possible. So often it's the dustbin or escape, and often it's a bonfire. And so I thought the thing to do was to stand up and try and stop this force of nature because the written testimony of persons who are not famous and not especially not politicians should be preserved because their voices and their humanity and they're very important. Leave the great court of the British Museum, go past ancient Egypt, up some stairs, and through a door that says no public access, and you'll find a small room that is full of diaries. I went to find out why. OK, well, my name is um, Irving Finkel, and I'm actually a curator in the British Museum, but with a good part of my heart, I'm very concerned with this diary project, and it was basically my idea. 
and it's come to be with the help of lots of other people but the idea was um, to rescue diaries which float about in the world that nobody really wants before they destroy them and the simple plan was to find a home where diaries like this could be taken in and looked after for the future John Leeson, London 20th of April, 1861. Mrs Tunks spent a few days with us. And when we came home from London in a fly, the horse ran away with me alone in it from our house. He providentially stopped at his old stable near Addison Road. I have much cause to be thankful to God for preserving me, as I might have been thrown out and killed or much hurt, for which protection I desire to bless his holy name. Irving still has about 1,200 diaries in his office at the British Museum, but the rest of them have found a permanent home at the Bishopsgate Institute. So my name's Steph Dickers, Special Collections and Archives Manager at Bishopsgate Institute, and Bishopsgate Institute's a cultural centre, just on the cusp of the City of London and East London, and it's home, we do lots of lectures, courses, events, all sorts of wonderful things. But it's also home to a library which specialises in everything about the history of London, radical politics, uh, LGBT history and the Great Diary Project. The Institute very much has a basis in sort of recording everyday experience rather than the rich, the famous, the powerful. Uh, So when I got in touch with Irvin, who was planning the Great Diary Project and had this sort of bring of an idea about creating a place where non-famous people's diaries could be kept. It sort of fitted very succinctly in with what the whole Institute's ethos was about. Uh, But what amazed me was that there wasn't a place already for those sort of diaries which are the sort of day-to-day record of life and feelings and emotions. I think it's the only place in Britain. DS, Cardiff, 30th of January, 1944. B came home. Cycled to Penarth, then had tea at home. He proposed to me. We started collecting stuff in about 2012, and it's really sort of blossomed since then. So the collection now includes coming on to about 10,000 diaries of about 400 different diarists. A lot of people say, oh, God, thank God, there's a place now where I can give Granny's diaries, you know. She kept a diary all her life, recorded what she was doing every day, and they now know they can give them here and they'll be stored and they'll be safe and they'll be appreciated and treasured. There's a lot of like, oh my God, thank God, because I was worried what was going to happen. And that happens a lot. What also really excites me is the sort of empowerment that I think people feel by it, that something I've done which was for me actually has some use to somebody else. You know, they're quite... Some, some people have been quite overwhelmed by it, you know. They're almost like children. One woman was like, these are like my children I'm giving to you. And we're sort of... I had to give her a big hug and she had sort of tears, you know, as she was handed over the archive. Uh, Some people give more engagement form diaries. Some people write very reflective, long, you know, analytical entries. Other people just write literally words. Uh, We have dream books. We have slightly naughty diaries we have uh, all sorts of wonderful things we've got one woman's diaries who sewed her diaries one gentleman who just draws his face every day smiling sad confused uh, so there's all sorts of different ways that people keep diaries ar london july 1949 on july the 7th last week g got married 
It's hard to realise. It seems such a little while ago that she was a baby, then a toddler and a schoolgirl, and then a teenager. Now she's married, and I'm a mother-in-law. G and J are away in Switzerland on their honeymoon. G asked me, where did I go on my honeymoon? I told her, Barra High Street. It's nice to be able to give one's children what we never had ourselves. It's what we work for. Are there any diarists or any diaries that you hold in the collection that you're particularly fond of? Yes. There's this, which has only come my way recently. This is really something. You see, it's written, diary, 1834 to 1839, half-calf, beautifully bound thing. Well, it's all in code. Wow. It's all in code in beautiful brown ink, as you can see. So... Have you cracked it? Oh, yes. I couldn't possibly have a code lying around that I can crack. Definitely. It's written by a clergyman um, in, who lived in a small village in, near Malden, and I discovered all sorts of marvellous, marvellous, marvellous things. One of them is that um, his sister was called Eliza, and she was a painter. And she was best friends with a woman called Elizabeth Barrett, who lived up the road, who later on became Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And Elizabeth Barrett Browning kept a diary herself about two years before this was written and it's been published by these American scholars marvellous edition of it and all the people in this book are in that diary so I've got listening to conversations over the fence all that time ago because Elizabeth Barrett thought this guy who wrote this diary was rather boring so I, we've got her published diary about them and and it's amazing and, and I discovered also that um, his brother-in-law um, was the last clergyman in Britain to fight a duel and all this stuff. It was in a skip. It was in a skip. There's a peculiar psychological phenomenon that comes of spending time reading other people's diaries. Because I, I don't do it out of nosiness, but more out of sympathy. But it is possible to be swayed by a kind of nostalgia when you're reading an old diary when you didn't have anything to do with that in the first place or live in anything like a comparable circumstances, and yet, the thing that comes off it, it's like when you hear a piece of band music on a 78 record from the 1920s, it has a kind of pluck at you, even if you were born years afterwards, because it's associative. And this comes off the diaries as well. It's a very interesting thing. There's many, many, many that are particularly wonderful. There's a lady who just started keeping a diary when she retired and lost her first husband and then found a new lover and sort of had a second wind uh, and spent most of the time on holiday and, if I can say, having lots of sex and had the most wonderful time. So you read through this and it sort of gives you courage. Well, you know, maybe after 60, life's going to be great and, you know, we'll have lots of fun. Anyone can wander in. Uh, the library's open Monday to Friday, 10 to half five. You can wander in. All the diaries are stored on site. They're here for you to come and use. So you just turn up. The catalogue online... Uh, on this great diary project website uh, but also just phone up as well and get in contact with the library if there's a specific thing you're interested in If somebody wants to donate a diary, what should they do? Just get in contact with us uh, through the library at Bishopsgate Institute or through the great diary project website uh, and we're very friendly we're very nice, we'd love, we'll look after and treasure the diaries, they'll be here 500 years after we've all passed on being read by researchers and scholars and to find out what life was like today so do do it because the more people do it the more human experience we can record 
And uh, yeah, just get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Everyone always says, you know, oh, my diaries are boring. Get that all the time. So, well, you wouldn't my diaries. So, when I talk to people about diaries, they're like, oh, yeah, but mine are boring. You won't want those. Never seen a boring one, mm. you know. And one of the missions of the project is to say to people that your lives are not boring. Your lives are what makes history. So you can donate Family Diaries to The Great Diary Project or your own. I might give it a go. They want to save all diaries, old and new. Most of the diaries are available to view, but they can also be kept confidential for as long as you want. There's lots more information on the website, thegreatdiaryproject.co.uk, including the contact details for Steph Dickers, who can show you any diaries you're interested in or arrange to add any diaries you have to this amazing archive. So... How to talk about the next guest. Well, when I bring a guest to the studio, I try to bring someone that I personally admire. I probably know, but I think the world should, you know, we should have a documented conversation with. It's a selfish endeavor and today's no different. Ed Cook is the founder of the hugely successful Memorize app and an international international memory champion. He's currently building up that platform Memorize that connects millions of people across the globe using language learning. So, Ed, first of all, how did you get into being a memory man? Yeah, it's a curious um, kind of uh, line of interest I've gotten into. And what actually happened was that shortly after leaving school, I, um, I ended up with a um, obscure back condition and wound up in hospital for three months. And of course, um, that's an incredibly boring thing to happen to you if you're a 19 year old. And so mm. I was uh, I was adamant that I'd make some kind of use use of it. And so a friend brought around a book on how to train your memory. And um, do you remember who who was it? Was it Tony Buzan? Um, it was uh, a guy called Dominic O'Brien. Okay. Um, I I remember the particular thing which made me read it. It's actually funny because the the other book he brought was uh, Learn Russian. I thought, okay, I'll begin with the memory one. And the reason was that it had a sticker on the front of it. Um, because on the front it said six times world memory champion Dominic O'Brien there was a special sticker on there saying now seven times world memory champion <laughs> so I thought oh well he's seven times world memory champion he's got to know what he's talking about so, uh, so I got onto that and then very quickly um, you know memory techniques turn out to be very intuitive they're kind of games of the imagination they're quite a good way to while away the time and very quickly I became good enough at it to be able to you know, occasionally attract a small um, crowd of nurses to my bedside to demonstrate some memory trick so what and, kind of tricks were you doing in well, hospital while you were there gaining the sympathy what were you doing uh so i was doing things like memorizing the shuffled order of a deck of cards okay. um or um learning like a random list of 100 words and things like that well what's the most nefarious use you've ever put this memory skill to well i i did once have a scheme where i would um get drunk in a bar yeah. Um, and stay late um, until I was clearly in a state of extreme inebriation. And then I would sort of garble out to the, to the barman, oh, I'll tell you what, if I can remember this pack of cards, can you give champagne for everybody? And, uh, <laughs> and then I, was, I could still do it when I was drunk. And so I sometimes used to um, trick uh, un un uh, unsuspecting barman to give me loads of, uh, loads of alcohol. Well, that sounds really good. What are these techniques? Give me a, a few techniques. You don't have to break them down in detail. So, so the basic um, trio of principles um, is, first of all, to turn anything which is, um, which is unmemorable into something which is memorable, which normally means turning it into an image. Um, so, for instance, with cards, um, you actually have a little vocabulary so that every card corresponds to a person. Okay. Um, and, um, and would this, be, this would be different for each person trying to memorize 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah, this is your just personal vocabulary. You just sort of make up a little set of images. And so a mixture of friends and celebrities and random people. Um, and by the way, the funny thing about it is because I did it at the age of 19 and I've sort of stuck with the same images. There's all these just random girls I haven't seen in 15 years who I obviously used to fancy. And I'm just like, why is my four of hearts? <laughs> so <laughs> this, this, this personal. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, they, they stick with you. And, you know, depressing sort of um, teenage imagination is kind of preserved. But anyway, so you have the, you have these images. And so, you know, the king of hearts might be like Nelson, the admirable, the seven of clubs might be Tiger Woods, the five of spades might be Shackleton, the great explorer. And then basically, as you get a sequence of cards, you string them into stories. Uh, and there's a particular twist on the way you do the stories, which is you make use of spaces. So everybody has an amazing uh, memory for space, just intuitively, you know, just by walking around a town, you get a lot of memories laid down and you can use that as a mm. structure. So by attaching the memories in your imagination to different points in space, you can actually remember incredibly long sequences. Uh, and it's almost indefinitely extensible. So, you know, if you, if you think, okay, well, I think I could, ima- you know, remember five people imagined at different spots. Well, it turns out you'll probably be able to remember 500 if you can do that. And so you can remember, you know, 20 packs of cards in an hour um, if you want to, which you probably shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> but you say if you want to, do you say that most people you meet have the ability to use these techniques that you've obviously perfected and used to such a high degree? Yes, uh, and um, you know I've had I had a few kind of quite fun experiences um, of um, of teaching people. I once met a journalist. I, I, I competed in the U.S. Memory Championships in two thousand and uh, a while back, two thousand six, and um, and I won them. And um, wow. the kind of the typical the typical reaction to this is like, oh my god, you're such a you know, genius, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, 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 I just use these techniques, I can teach you. Um, and he was like, okay, fine, teach me. So I taught him, and the next year he actually won the US Memory Championship, so that was, <laughs> that, that was quite nice. Um, the funny thing about memory is that, that everyone is actually, typically has something they're really good at remembering. Um, uh, but they're often quite unaware that they're so good at remembering that thing. So, you know, I often say to school's audiences, if I speak to them, you know, um, you know you'll all be good at remembering something. Um, you know, for instance, you know, you might remember every Premier League football result for the last three years. That's basically a medical degree's worth of ed- information. Maybe not as useful, but it's a lot yeah. of information. I spoke to one guy and he was, uh, he, I was like, you must be good at remembering something. He was like, oh, um, no, I don't think so. I'm pretty useless. And I was like, well, think of something. And he was like, oh, I suppose I, I, suppose I did memorize the Quran. <laughs> just the Quran. <laughs> so people can be quite unaware of their their mental powers and what they've already accomplished in this way. Okay, so how did this clearly fun, interesting path for you personally lead into you uh, founding this app? Did you found it? Is it you yourself, or have you got you know partners? Yeah. So um, so memorize um is a um uh, it's a language learning app for those of uh, you who are interested and it um it began kind of with the idea that cause memory techniques are quite effortful you've got to do lots of repetition and testing and you've got to put an enormous amount of emotional intellectual energy into doing things um and the thing i really wanted to remember was languages because you know if you speak a language it kind of opens up your world and your imagination in in new ways but it requires a lot of willpower to be able to to enjoy the benefits of this technique and so we, you know to begin with we want to put together um, you know basically a system which would give your mind superpowers it would remind you it would test you it would entertain you as you're learning and it would mean that you know you could put sort of anybody in front of it the dream was and uh, the dream is um, and they would wind up you know, storing an enormous amount of information in their minds, um, and so that began in 2010 with a uh, with a couple of um, a couple of friends, and um, yeah, and so we're we're still going. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, going very well. I've bumped into it in numerous settings and used it myself. It's a great tool. But um, so, 
what's the you guys it sounds like you've got a mission behind it because some of the things you've done to promote it like the bus could you talk about the bus yeah so i mean i think that the if there's one fundamental insight we really believe in and want to be more generally enjoyed and recognized is that learning at its best is emotional like if you can connect to something emotional, then um, then the kind of learning takes care of itself. You know, I sometimes compare the fact that, you know, in seven years of high school French, you learn, you know, as much as you would in, uh, you know, one week in bed with like Alain Delon or Brigitte Bardot. Um, and, you know, you say, well, why why is that kind of latter immersive experience so much more powerful? And it's well, because it obviously brings meaning uh, and intensity and personal narrative into things. And so, you know, really what we're trying to do is to create a similarly emotional, uh, joyful experience, which kind of connects you to why you want to learn a language in the first place, namely to see the world in new ways, to travel, to make friends, to fall in love, whatever. Uh, and so the bus, bus project was kind of like an anarchic thing, but we, because um, we're both in Bethnal Green and now, and now all gate east, but um, we got um, uh, an old double decker bus from like 1972 and mm. we painted it in the memorized colors. And then we set off on a tour around Europe. And so we went to like 15, 20 countries. And in each of those countries, we had like a team of people on board. We kitted it outside so we could sleep on it. Mm. Um, and we went out and among our users and among uh, just people on the streets, we crowdsourced like a video dictionary of these um, European languages. And we've subsequently gone on to do this in Russia and Japan and places. Um, and these videos are just full of like the joy of travel. They just get with these amazing characters with their amusing faces and accents and habits and backgrounds and so on. And so uh, bringing these all into um, the app kind of kind of brought the richness of the world into it and that was that's what we're kind of really passionate about to, to, to turn learning into a recreational activity I guess yeah and well you certainly have um, what do you see for Memorize next have you got like a stealth plan that you're unable to disclose or have you got things that you'd like to share with the world what, what, what's next uh, so we have we've grown quite a bit now we've got quite a lot of people on the team we've got 60 people on the team and and one part of the team which i'm really excited about is our learning research team so we've got this amazing um cross selection of kind of characters um and by the way there were 40 different nationalities on the memorized team so it's very kind of um diverse um environment but but you know one of them speaks like 15 languages and one of them's wow. a developmental linguist and one of them's a um chinese karaoke obsessive and um they're kind of just like a kind of a mixture of all the times and anyway they were building some really cool new learning experiences which i'm quite excited about on one particular mode we just launched actually it's quite fun. It's kind of an example of how I see the future. Um, is a mode where you have to um, dub videos of uh, native speakers with your own voice. Um, and we don't have any record of a person's gender. So often you'd be like dubbing the uh, uh, you know Chinese woman speaking and she's saying ni hao and so you go ni hao and then you hear your voice coming out of the person but the curious influence of this is you suddenly like think oh this language which seems so foreign this people which seem so far away that's my voice coming out of that woman I, I, I could be <laughs> I could be a Chinese speaker and it somehow like flips your experience of speaking the foreign language from being mm. something which other people do to like ah oh, actually I can actually see myself maybe doing this and of course turns it into a slightly absurd game which is good as well well it's brilliant it's something that people love it's a reverse of all the dub games that you know like people sing along to mouth along to music videos and there's apps that do that so it's it's amazing using that kind of emotion um well ed thank you very much for coming along and uh sharing sharing what you shared um where can we find out about this app if we want to well so uh yeah memorize which is a language learning app you can download it on the play store or the apple uh, app store um so just memorize m-e-m rise um and then it's memorize.com 
So uh, have a go, and it's uh, largely free, so that's nice too. All right, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, and now for quite a different kind of startup. Um, I met up with Duncan O'Brien and Graham Walker at the Dalston Cola HQ to discover how this soft drinks company has grown from its humble beginnings at the East London venue Passing Clouds, RIP, uh, to to competing with fizzy pop heavyweights around the world. This is our old bottling machine. We're not actually using this anymore. We work with an outsourced bottling company. We got to a point where we were bottling 12 hours a day. When we did everything in-house, we went through a series of machines until we found this in a barn, I kid you not, in Yorkshire. And we got it down very cheap, and I stared at it for a while and then figured out what the various different bits were and how we could use it. So it's refurbished. Uh, originally these were wooden feet that my dad made. My dad's enormously helpful with this business. Used, used to be these things. Um, yeah. A bunch of those, they'd sit on those plates there. And you'd put the bottle in, close the thing, press that, the pneumatic swoops up, go into these filling heads, screws them up, you see there. As soon as it gets to there, the little valve opens. And the liquid, which is under pressure, so it's called a counter-pressure bottle filler, so it pressurises the bottle at the same pressure as the, the vessel so that you don't basically get foam everywhere. So it fills it under pressure. And you take it out, and you cap it, and you pasteurise it, and you label it and bottle it. So you're doing all this by hand? Yes. Wow. Me, Graham, and Jamie Rio. I saw a bottle of them in France, uh, in Paris the other day. Someone on Instagram was like, you know, a nice ginger beer in Paris. Like, yes, it's, yeah, it's really great when you see when you see someone drinking it. I was in a hotel by the South Bank the other day and I saw some guy at like 11 in the morning, which is, I mean, that's too early for cola for me, but he was, he was drinking a cola and he was looking very happy with himself. And um, then he made a phone call and he had a Monsters Inc., Sully on, yeah, the, on yeah. his phone I was just like yes this guy's amazing he's an archetypal customer yeah, yeah. <laughs> the classic which I love to see is when someone will grab the bottle take a swig and then they'll turn the bottle towards them whilst reading the label and sort of nod and approve yeah, so it's sort of past their past their test these little things sometimes when you'll see it in a certain place or have a little exchange or like Duncan said see someone react positively it does kind of uh, sort of reaffirm that yeah okay cool we are doing something here that's, uh, that people are enjoying ultimately because that's what it is it is a bit of a treat you know well, I'm going to try. My, I have to admit, oh God. my first. Better with vodka. Dustin Cola. Yeah, it's a, a blend of like most soft drinks, a good balance of sweetness and acidity. So we get sweetness and acidity from really good citrus fruit. We work with a Sicilian uh, citrus processor and they get us a specific blend of orange and lemon and lime material. Yeah, there's definitely a citrus flavour coming through there. Um, and then we use, we've always used uh, infusions, which is, I suppose, a fancy way of saying uh, boiling stuff up in a pot. And the infusions, in this case, we use cola nut, lavender, um, and then some spices. So, Mamaseke on uh, Unity Stores, Ridley Road Market, yeah. Um, she's been our cola nut supplier for... Ah, five or six years and we just go up there and buy a bundle take them down grate them and then boil them up with some citrus and sugar to extract the properties and the flavour 
the flavour is quite bitter, which is why most of the rest of the drink is there to mask the taste of the powerful ingredient, which is the coconut. Hi, I'm Duncan O'Brien. I'm an ex-chef and wannabe anthropologist and the founder of the Dalston Cola Company. I'm Graham Walker. I'm the, why am I now, director of uh, operations, formerly production manager, drinks maker, I guess. Duncan uh, took me on. Uh, we met at the Lund School of Economics and Political Science back many moons ago now. Duncan had this harebrained scheme and I was out of work, so the rest is uh, history. He very kindly let me live in his cupboard for a period and I thought that I owed him, so um, <laughs> here we are. Uh, that was uh, how many years ago now? Oh, wow. Was, uh, so it's been four, nearly four and a half years oh, for me. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. I yeah, think I think yeah. it is, unfortunately. The drinks actually started being made by a guy called Steve Wilson, who now runs a food project in Hackney called Make Kit. It was his cousin Eleanor that founded Passing Clouds, and the Passing Clouds management didn't want to use mainstream cola and soft drinks brands. So they asked Steve to make the first cola and ginger beer, and then it went on from that. And Steve asked me to develop it into a business, so he did, which involved diluting the recipes and carbonating them and then finding out how to bottle them and preserve them, label them, and then scale the business, which we did with a method called bootstrapping, which is when you have no money and you try and make something work. So, for example, the first pallet of bottles I bought with a payday loan taken out on my then salary job. I suppose I just started it for the hell of it, really, almost because we could. I mean, I'd been looking into business at that point and had a vague understanding of what scalability was and soft drinks just seemed like the most obviously scalable business model around so I thought yeah we can probably do that so this is about five and a bit years ago get a pallet of bottles start making the drinks start selling them to local cafes and restaurants and my then girlfriend got on a bike and cycled around and got the first few customers and then it was about it's probably about a year of that or ten months of that before we got our first investor and we got our first investor because we needed to build a factory. It was, it was pretty awful building near the end of its life through a corridor that we could just fit a pallet down. And, and yeah. you could only go one way with the pallet. You yeah. couldn't go the other way with said pallet. It was a, a classic building full of artist studios, which in reality means a lot of artists lived there. It wasn't a great building. We arrived when the golden era of Hackney Wick was really on the downward turn. It was a good community for us, wasn't it? There was yeah. small businesses and some like closely linked to what we were doing it was, it was really a, it was a great it was a great three years to spend there we worked insanely hard i think we worked probably on average maybe 11 or 12 hours a day um yeah there were 60 hour weeks pretty much i'd do one delivery at least a week where i would deliver a pallet of drinks at around well sometimes yeah. it would be midnight if we didn't finish it on time it would definitely be 10 o'clock yeah. that would involve me driving all the way down to Vauxhall. and when you're based in Hackney wick it's quite a long drive yeah. driving in a vehicle that maybe wasn't quite fit for purpose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we really had absolutely no idea what we were doing. So we were making, making all of the drinks ourselves from scratch. That was Hackney Wick. And then we had to move. We moved in a sort of challenge anarchist style when LLDC, London Legacy Development Corporation, they sent us a lawyer's letter saying, oh, your lease is up for renewal. I said, okay, we'll renew our lease, no problem. Can we get a, you know, just a rolling contract? Because we know that this building is near the end of its life. They wanted to get it run out. So... They said that they'd have to charge us three months rent up front and a £750 contract renegotiation fee, which we just thought... Uh, that's £3,000. So it's £3,000, which to us at that point was just an exorbitant amount of money. We got used to running the business, you know, team of three working insanely hard, trying not to go bankrupt. So trying to grow, but also trying to run on money. I just thought, you know what, this isn't worth it. 
a friend of ours who'd got the lease on these two fantastic arches in Mile End uh, and was planning on building a distillery and he said come on just come move in here so we made the call and we decided to up sticks and we got I think Graham's father came down my father came down we hired a couple of vans plus our van we had about 15 or 20 people and we just tore the factory apart stuffed it all into vans and did about three or four trips with the three vehicles we did it one day so we set up in one arch next door uh, while we were doing up this arch and to take the cobbles out of here we poured a new concrete floor which is angled um, there's a guy called Ben from the King Charles I pub in King's Cross who came and showed us how to design this angled floor and build the forms and have the string lines you know this, this is designed to do exactly what we wanted to do an hour a day just managing the level of uh, water on the floor whereas now with strip drainage you know, and uh, also thanks to, to Grant as well, another Hackney Down Studios connection who, who came in and really sort of whipped this place into shape. Like with most projects, we sort of ran over budget, we were running out of time. I think we would all kind of started to burn out a little bit because we were working from next door, producing drinks as well as building a factory. Um, two things that are incredibly hard to do at any time, really, let alone at the same time. It sounds also like a lot of people believe in you, they want this to work. Genuinely, there, there is a real feel good, and I think a lot of it comes from what you look at some of these drinks brands, and not to do them a disservice, but that they are guys who are very experienced and very skilled salesmen and, 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 and managers and, and directors who, who have a plan and you know a thought, a, a, an idea, a design, and they execute it or they get other people to execute it. Whereas we've sort of done it the wrong way around, you could say, yeah. but that means there's been a lot of love, a lot of passion, a lot of craft, and that real hands on connection. And I think that's really uh, attuned to, to what people are looking for now. They want a genuine experience, people like a genuine story. And, you know, it's quite unusual that we've got a founder who actually founded the business and has done the nitty gritty, not a founder who hot desks around in West London somewhere wearing a, you know, a swish suit, although he'll get there, I'm sure, in the near future. I suppose part of it comes from maybe there's a British sort of support the underdog mentality and partly the roots in passing clouds. I think that gave us a bit of a sort of early support and partly because people can just come around and hang out and see what happens and we have the other parties every now and again. But yeah, if people do want to visit the factory, they are, they are welcome to come visit the plant. We've um, had a few people pop in on yeah. our cans that just say you can stalk us here at and I've had a, a couple of people walk in and um, it's been great. It kind of puts you off guard a little bit, but they're very infused, they're very knowledgeable and yeah, they're just really keen to see what it's like. And I guess bigger drinks companies and brands pay a lot of people to fabricate a story yeah they do indeed and you've got a genuine story and I think that, yeah people know that <laughs> yeah. and that comes through people are super keen on stories I hear this every day especially as we're starting to focus a little bit more on what our brand is whatever that means but story is everything now and people don't really know the half of it when they when they think they know the story there's a, there's a lot of sort of a lot of strife wrapped up in the stories of these small companies I think um, but it is, it is, if it's to our advantage, then we'll, we'll, we'll definitely take it. You're listening to Eastcast on Radio Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. All of our stories, past and present, can be found on eastcastshow.com. And if you never want to miss a show again, just search Eastcast Show London on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider and you will get the show straight into your feed. 
So now for the third episode of my mini-series, Starting Conversations. This month, I walked down Kingsland Road asking people what the menopause was. I, st- I ended up in Stoke Newington, where I spoke with Eileen Bellow about her project, Reclaim the Menopause. I'm not exactly sure what the menopause is, but um, I know women of a certain age, um, say what, 50 plus, they normally have hot flushes. I know this when you stop having your periods. Um, I know that, yes, you can get hot flushes. Hot flushes. Reduce libido. <laughs> what I know is hot flushes is the, is the main thing they go through. Okay, so it's when uh, women run out of eggs and then they stop producing the hormones uh, in their body, so they stop having menstrual cycles and then they have quite a few other things and symptoms as well. How, how come you know this about I'm a doctor. It, it was fairly normal, I did get hot sweats. But I learned to cope with them by, you know, not wearing so much, not drinking cups of, cups of tea all through the afternoon and not too much coffee and just timing things a bit better. Um, and I was just so relieved when it was all over, really. But hooray, I can go anywhere, anytime. I do sometimes think about it. I've talked to my mum about it. She said that if your mum has a bad menopause, then you will have a bad menopause but that she sailed through her menopause, her words, so I'll sail through mine. So I feel pretty good about the menopause. It doesn't worry me that much. She brought it up. I think she wanted to talk about it, but only after it was finished. Did you know that she was going through it when she was... Not really, no. Not at the time. But then we talked about it once she was done, I think. Why she that? don't know. just got to get on with it, really, didn't you? No, I didn't any sympathy or understanding because it's one of those things you just have to get through. I didn't talk to my partner about it either because, I don't, yes, I suppose I might have said, oh, it's, you know, I'm feeling funny or something like that, but I don't think, frankly, men don't know the, their own biology, let alone a woman's biology, and I suspect most men stopped in the street wouldn't have a clue where things were. Is it when the I'm just throwing it out there, but it's like period stops around about then as well. I've heard about that as well, yeah. So, um, period stops, hot flushes, but those are the main two things I know. Last had HRT, which helped. Do I still do HRT now? That makes you feel normal again, so you don't get the hot sweats and panic attacks, you just feel normal. Well, it's difficult because the mo- usually the way they treat it is by giving hormone replacement. And there's like quite a lot of uh, things in the media about uh, how that's really dangerous and cause cancer. And, like no one really knows if it, if it does. Well, maybe they do. I don't, I'm not that up to date on, uh, on that. There was like an osteoporosis scare yeah. in the media a few years ago, I think. That HRT could give you brittle bones. Osteoporosis, they call it in the biz. (laughs) If people want to talk, I think they should have the availability. You know, there should be people there to talk to them, as I would happily talk to somebody. 
who's actually gone through it as opposed to a medical person who's going to medicate it through. Do you know what I mean? Okay, so my name is Eileen Bellart and I am the Managing Director of Hands Inc. And we um, are running the Reclaim the Menopause uh, project at Hands Inc. I think the menopause is almost like a rites of passage, really. And like rites of passage, you know, you're baptised in fire, quite literally, (laughs) with the hot flushes. Um, and And I think a lot of women find it really difficult coming back to their bodies. We think we know ourselves, we think we know our bodies, and then all of a sudden things feel almost like they're out of our control. Uh, it's almost like having your second puberty. Um, in the same way when you go through puberty, your hormones are thrown upside down. There's a lot of internal things going on. It's not necessarily visible, um, uh, but there are a lot of changes, and if you're a woman, who's got a busy life, you know, often the women who come to our workshops will say, I'm too busy to have the menopause, you know. Um, And also, you know, for professional women um, who may be experiencing memory lapses, that can be quite a stressful thing. I mean, I've often heard women saying that they think they're getting early dementia. Nobody's informed them that that might be a symptom and um, the fact that it is a transitional period. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be unable to hold um, information forever and a day. There's a period called the perimenopause where the woman is making the transition. Um, When a woman becomes menopausal, she is no longer bleeding, I think, Um, The health professionals will say, if you haven't bled for over a year um, and you're in that particular age group, that age range of 45 to 55, then it is likely that you have become menopausal. Now, we know that some women, from our experience, will go without bleeding for a whole year and they may start bleeding again. I mean, we get often asked by women, how long does the menopause last? Uh. And I say, how long's a piece of string? Uh. Because it's very, very, very different for every single woman. The impact of the less estrogen in their bodies has a number of knock-on effects. And I think every woman will experience um, symptoms very differently. 80% of women will have some form of symptom, whether it be mild or more complex. 45% will find those symptoms debilitating. Now that's quite a high number of women who have been going around very quietly, dealing with it, um, and not speaking about it. Have you come across any trans or non-binary people who are going through the menopause? No, but I was at an event last week at the South Bank, I think it was, and a trans man did come up to me and said, you know, it's really interesting what's going on because I'm taking this meds and I'm experiencing some changes which I've been told are quite similar to menopausal symptoms. But he mentioned a group actually that um, were gathering, looking at the menopause around trans issues. So yeah. 
The one everybody knows is the Hot Flushes and Night Sweats, Mood Swings. Um, one, one that's actually, I think, underrated is Lack of Sleep. Because if a woman is having night sweats, for example, week after week after week after week, she's getting two or three hours of sleep a night. That is going to impact her during the day. And that can be sometimes the cause of some mood swings. Uh, it could also lead to being much more accidental and, and also begin to affect their memories because they're so tired. So I think that the, the lack of sleep is huge. Another one that people often talk about is the lower libido, the sex drive becomes lower. But actually, for some women, it actually increases. Um, vaginal dryness, that can sometimes be the reason why women want less sex because they're feeling like actually it's quite painful but there are things that you can do and if we are not women are not talking about it then they won't know how best to manage those things we developed the program to bring in all kinds of aspects like looking at um, ageism sexism what happens to women in the workplace what's the beauty industry saying to women why is it that every time a woman has a crack she's got to polyfill it you know I'm going through the menopause and on my desk I have a little bottle of water with essential oil lavender and that helps me with my hot flushes <laughs> at one point we had in our office all menopausal women and uh, it is such a laugh sometimes <laughs> when we all get our little hot flush bottles out or we all think what was that we were saying a few seconds ago <laughs> so we are living it it's a live project at Hansing reclaim the menopause I think talk about it, that's the biggest thing. I think um, silence is, it causes more pain. Silence causes more symptoms. Find a friend and chuckle about it, you know. I'm sure you've seen other women on the bus having a hot flush. You know, give them a wink. I, I think one of the things that we want to do going forward with um, the, the menopause project, we're, we're calling it Reclaim the Menopause, because we want women to reclaim it as an empowering time in their lives and not just a time where they're experiencing lots of pain and loss. So you just heard part of my conversation with Eileen Bellow, who runs the Reclaim the Menopause project. Reclaim the Menopause are starting a new round of workshops on Monday, October the 16th. They also run a fortnightly support group for people who can't commit to the full 12-week programme. To find out more about her uh, Reclaim the Menopause project, you can visit reclaimthemenopause.com. You can also find them on Facebook, Reclaim the Menopause, and on Twitter, at The Menopause. And it's time for us to say goodbye. Eastcast will be back soon on Resonance 104.4 FM with more sounds and stories from East London and beyond. In the meantime, you can find everything on eastcastshow.com. To play us out is an extract from a wonderful project called Breathing Space, who create site-specific performances combining voice, instruments and field recordings. On Saturday, they will be creating and performing a piece called Peel at St John's Church in Bethnal Green for a very special service. We'll post all the info on our website. So here is Breathe Space with a live recording of Heard. So thanks for listening and join us again next month on Eastcast. <laughs>